This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 260. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Jack. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 260 you're listening to. My guest today is producer, engineer, mixer Ben Bernstein, who is making a second appearance here on the podcast. His first was at episode number 55, many moons ago. We're going to sit down with Ben and discuss what has changed in the time that we have talked to him and his approach and his philosophy about how he does things these days. So I'm very much looking forward to Ben being back here with us. Ben Bernstein, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about perspective. This morning, my wife and my two sons and I went out to do some volunteer work for an organization called PAWS. Pets are wonderful. This is an old organization in San Francisco. And they have been doing this annual holiday stocking delivery for pets for a long time. And essentially what you're doing is, is you're going out on a route, either with um, a team of strangers together, you know, people you meet there at the, the headquarters or your family or whoever. And they, they create these teams of people to go to different neighborhoods. And we pass out these bags to the pet owners who have cats or have dogs. These are people who might have some form of illness or disability. They may be of limited financial income and be suffering some, from some form of isolation and just basically be immobile. You know, they might have some uh, debilitating disease that prevents them from getting out into the world on a daily basis. And this is a way to kind of brighten, brighten their day, brighten their holiday. So we went out and we passed out all of these bags of, of treats and food to these owners in uh, the Tenderloin neighborhood in San Francisco. Many of you might be familiar with Tenderloin. It's a challenged neighborhood to say the least. Uh, we were going into some kind of older San Francisco buildings uh, that are a little rough around the edges. Uh, maybe in their heyday in the 20s or the 30s, they were like you know, pretty classic buildings, but they're a little more run down now, and in the, in the specific blocks in the Tenderloin that we were in are kind of rougher neighborhoods. Uh, definitely, you know, a lot of drug dealing activity going on. Also a lot of homeless, which is unfortunately on the rise uh, all over California. And the perspective here that I want to share with you is that, uh, you know, I'm very fortunate. My kids are very fortunate. We live in a great neighborhood. They go to great schools. And uh, we live in a community that is just really not suffering, honestly. So to go to this neighborhood and to see uh, a lot of these people who mo most of them are, you know, probably in their um, late 60s, 70s, 80s. And, you know, medically, they're, they're not doing so great. And I'll tell you, the, the, the first guy that we met up with to give him uh, his bag for his dog, you can hear his dog yipping in the background. This guy was very frail, did not look the healthiest, uh, and, you know, I have no idea what his situation is. But let me tell you something. The look on his face and the joy in his eyes when we came to the door dressed just ridiculously. I mean, Santa hats, and I have on this, uh, this red, not a sweater, but more like a sweatshirt with cats and dogs on it, and it's got built-in lights. 
with a battery pack. So you can imagine with all of us showing up there dressed kind of like that, a little bit on the ridiculous side, that he was thrilled. If you haven't volunteered to help out others before and to see that thrill in their eyes and their faces, it is, it's heartwarming and it really, really gives such a perspective into your own life and, you know, makes you realize how fortunate you are, if you are fortunate. Maybe you're not fortunate. Maybe you're having a really rough time, and, and I'm sorry to hear that if, if that is the case. But for those of you that are in situations where things are pretty okay for you and your biggest problems are traffic or um, people not returning your emails or whatever, first world problems, things like that, try to do some volunteer work. It really, I think, will put a lot of that, that crap into perspective. Not trying to take away, you know, the, the troubles that you may be having, but this really puts a different spin on your life. And it reminded me when I was a younger man living in San Francisco, playing in bands and running around the city. You know, I definitely observed a lot of uh, uh, poverty, a lot of homelessness, and it sunk in then, but it just, it sinks in, I think, even more. It becomes even more poignant as, as someone who's older now and somebody who's been around for a little while, you know? definitely makes you appreciate what you have. So that's one perspective. Another aspect of, of perspective that I want to bring up with you is the perspective of learning from your peers. I know that I can get stuck in a little bubble and think that, okay, I got it under control. think I've got all the knowledge that I need at the moment. And then one conversation later, I feel like, oh, right. Okay, there's a different way to do this. There's a different way to make records, to do the business of making records, to being a recording professional. And I always tell you, I approach things with the beginner's mind. And, and uh, my interview with Ben Bernstein for this episode definitely reminded me, oh yeah, you should spend more time talking to your peers because there's always something to learn. And Ben coming over to the house to sit down for an interview really gave me a lot of motivation in a couple different areas. We touch on the idea of, you know, removing friction for our clients so our clients can get the best out of us that they can. Just like encouraging you to volunteer, I want to also encourage you to spend time with your peers. And sometimes it's good to just spend time asking questions. In spite of the fact that you may have more experience than your particular peer that you're talking with, it's good to just kind of stop talking and maybe ask questions and get answers about how they work, what they do. A lot of us in the audio world are blowhards. I mean, let's be frank. We sit and, oh, I did this and I did that. And, you know, oh, and I remember back in my day, blah, 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 blah. Enough of that right? Start asking questions of your peers, especially uh, of the ones that are younger than you who are doing things a little bit different, because I really feel that it brings a new perspective and fresh, fresh ideas, fresh concepts to the table. And it really gets you thinking, you know, huh, maybe I could do this a little bit different way. And just because you have more experience than the other person doesn't mean you can't just be the inquisitive student. That's an important aspect of that comes with experience of knowing that, oh, I should ask questions. I should learn. I should add to my, my uh, experience by adding new ideas. For this holiday season, when you're reflecting on the past year, think of the people in your life, the peers, whether they're older or younger, that you could sit down with over a cup of coffee and ask questions. Learn how they do it. And 
dig deep, figure out what it is that they're doing in all aspects, if they're open to you asking them questions. But quite honestly, most people like to talk about themselves. So in that spirit, I think you'll find some very willing participants. So to recap, keep the perspective of your own situation. Try to do some volunteer work for those that need your help. And also in regards to your peers, be willing to stop and ask questions and add to your knowledge pool and get a different perspective. So it's all about the perspective today. How many times can I say perspective in one episode? So there it is. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, They've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, It's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and in a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You can talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Ben Bernstein, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hi, Ben. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Our last interaction of this nature happened in early January 2016. 
we did a video edition of that. We're not doing a video edition of this because I have just abandoned all hope on video because it's the biggest pain in the butt ever. But it's good to have you back. It's good to be here. And mm. it's good to not be on camera. Isn't it? It is. It's a, it's a lot more relaxing. Yes. And we're going to go to breakfast after this, of course. That's going to be awesome. Give me a broad overview. What's happened since 2016? And for the audience, we're recording this early December. We're, of course, coming up on 2020. So what's happened? A lot has happened. Some new things have happened. Back then when you interviewed me, I think I was still contracting with Microsoft, working on AI voices, Siri type things they call it, Cortana. Right. I'm no longer doing that. I've been more freelance and entrepreneurial since then. But some things that have changed, I've gotten more into doing live sound, front of house gigs. I've gotten more into some live stream, live mixing situations. I've worked on this podcast called Renee and Irish Greg's Pop-Up Bay Area, which is a combination like doing front of house and like making a mix so they can put their podcast up. And that's been pretty cool. We just did another one last night. We did our little Christmas show and producing records been playing more in this like party band which has been pretty cool hmm. so i've diversified more or grown my diversification and relied more on like okay i'm ben and i'm not just out there hunting for like another corporate contract i mean those are great when you get them oh yeah yeah and like if they come along like I'll take one. But it's also kind of like, I think I've gotten a little more in the groove, like, okay, I've been doing this for 10 years and this is working. I'm still here. I'm still doing it in the Bay Area, which seems kind of nuts because the cost of living and everything, but I'm going to go with the flow. What made you decide to, to pursue the live sound thing more? The live sound thing, I've always complained that I find it a little nerve wracking. It is. And I think for anyone who's like been a studio professional to jump into live, okay, you have basic principles that are obviously the same. You have microphones and you have cables and techniques and things that you can do, but it is an entirely different discipline in a way. There's no control to the environment. And then you have things like amps and feedback and there's so many different configurations of gear and things, everything from like, hey, I've got this old Mackie system to get D and B line array rig and you're working with someone and you got to know how the pins go in and how the angles should be set and power amps and configuring them so you don't blow up a subwoofer by sending it full range and stuff like that, right? The way I got into it actually is when we used to do those KFOG gigs, rest in peace, KFOG no KFOG, more. KFOG, rest in peace. But we talked about this in the last podcast, but they had this cool situation where they had an in-studio performance space and they'd bring in really cool bands and Matt and I would go up there and sometimes you, Matt would always do like the multi-track recording and you do this cool live mix and quickly it would go on air. So there was this like, okay, I'm going to do a mix. I might not fix it and it might go on the radio. And that's kind of cool to be kind of in the moment like that. So we did that, but there were times when I would be in the room doing the live sound. And I was like, well, I don't care. I'll go up there. It's like Ziggy Marley. You want me to like mix his vocal and his guitar? I'm not doing anything that day. Great. So I kind of started doing that. And then what happened was a couple DJs, Renee Richardson and Irish Greg, Greg McQuaid, there was some transitions there and they no longer worked at the station. 
And I think they were lamenting and drinking and being like, oh, we miss going and doing location events for the radio station and bringing artists on and just kind of hanging out with the fans. So podcasting was starting to become a thing. And they're like, let's start a podcast. And they were like, well, we don't want to just like sit around and talk. Let's mm-hmm. do it somewhere. So something happened and they got this place called Amato's, which is in this like basement on Valencia Street in the Mission. It's this cool, you know, there's wood everywhere. And it had been one of those like DIY off the grid speakeasy places that someone lived in, mm. which pre the ghost ship fires in Oakland, if anyone knows, it was a tragedy where people were doing these art, art spaces and before that, there were a lot more of these in the Bay Area, and, there, and this was there. So anyways, that had kind of ended, and this guy bought it, and he's opened up a legitimate venue there. So they were doing it there before he had a liquor license. He's like, fine, just come in here and do stuff. And they got a beer sponsor, and they called me because they called Matt and said, Matt, do you want to do this? And Matt's like, I don't do front of house. <laughs> you could, you're talking to me. You could say you. They called you, but I'm talking to your audience too. They called up Matt Boudreau. Matt Boudreau said, that's not my niche. That's not what I do. And call Ben. So they called me. Hey, Ben, this is Greg. And I'm like, hey, Greg, sure. No problem. I called up Matt. I'm like, hey, Greg called me. Are you cool with this? They offered it to me. He's like, yeah, go with it. So I got a little more into doing like, okay, I'm going in there. I'm going to do sound. I'm going to record this thing. So I did a bunch of those gigs. And then at some point, a buddy of mine who works at SF Jazz, the SF Jazz Center, which is an amazing arts organization in San Francisco. They've built like a stadium, state-of-the-art 800-seat venue dedicated to jazz and contemporary forms beautiful building, great technical setup. One of the production managers finally came to a gig. I was doing the pop-up that is described and he's like, oh, oh, you actually do know how to do sound. Hey, we need another A2 stagehand guy. I was like, great. So I signed up there. I started doing stage work there. Now I'm mixing in their Joe Henderson lab, which is their small venue. Now I'm doing front of house there. Hmm. So that kind of started to grow it. And then I got looped into the Sweetwater Music Hall, which is in Mill Valley, which is becoming a legendary venue, another place that's really well built. They've got an avid profile mixing board in there, which is kind of like Pro Tools for live guys, right? So I started doing live recording there. I got that gig because I've been doing these live stream gigs for a buddy's company called First Tube Media. They sell branded content streaming packages to brands, and they were doing a pilot show for YouTube and Skullcandy. And they did it at the Sweetwater because when they built the club, they put a 48-channel Pro Tools native rig back there with like a Midas board. And the whole thing was designed by John Cutler, who worked with the dead for decades. So he designed it. So back in there in the office, behind all the beer racks, there's this 48-channel mixing board and a, and a Lynx, 48 channels of Lynx conversion and a Pro Tools rig. And there's five camera HD streaming system back there. So band sets up, I take the split, I do a mix, it goes to the line cutter. So you're broadcasting. So Mm. we did that. And then I ran into an old friend who's the production manager there, Michael Wilson. And I was like, this was great. Hey man, I'd I'd love to get in here more, which was funny because I emailed him several times. And you know how you, when you think, send things off into the ether and you're like, okay, this guy gets 20 of these a day and whatever. (laughs) But he's like, oh yeah. Cause I knew him from when I used to tour. I used to tour with a band called New Monsoon and we were in the jam band. 
Northern California hippie scene, and he was doing monitors for Spearhead. And we had the same booking agent. So we would get to open for Spearhead sometimes on tour, or they had us play at the Fillmore a few times. He used to do this Harvest Ball and stuff. So he's like, hey, man, what's going on? And so he started calling me to do recording gigs in the back because they'll sell in, any band who comes through has the opportunity to do a multi-track or do a multi-camera HD shoot. So if a band is playing there and wants a great promotional audio-visual package, they can throw down some coin. But if you consider what you're getting, they can walk out of there like, wow, dude, we've got a really awesome looking video. So sometimes I get called in there or sometimes when like Bob Weir's there or there's some kind of legendary jam guys, there, there's some kind of patron benefactor people out there be like, hey, we're going to pay to have it recorded. So I've gotten to record some pretty cool shows there. And then he's like, dude, you want to do front of house? And I'm like, sure, man, I want to learn that board because I'm working at SF Jazz, but I want more time on the board. So if, if they start to call me to do monitors, or if they ever call me to do front of house in the main room, I'm not like, hey, I've never used the profile of the SC48. Oh, it's the same board. It's the same board. Those boards are pretty common. They're legacy boards now. They're not supported. Avid's moved on to things like the, the SL6 or the SL series, which is pretty rad looking, but all these venues are like, uh, yeah, we don't have 100 grand plus. Oh, oh Avid moved on? What a surprise. Yeah, anyways, I mean, honestly, as hardware goes, I would say that company's kind of done this thing where I feel like they're like, a software company, which is fine. I'm not going to tout anything, but I think they're making a good product, a good subscription product. And subscriptions are kind of where it's at now. Pro Tools is still pretty awesome in that sense. But I think as far as gear, when they let go of the like, hey, you got to own one of our pieces of gear because it's a dongle for your software. I think they kind of unfocused on, okay, buy our preamps and our converters. And I think they're like, but we're going to make really good live gear. Hmm. Anyways, I think they, I think they're still very valid in, in in that in that arena. But I think a lot of these these venues are like we don't have money to buy a new Avid mix system, you know, board. So they're keeping these things alive and they're buying up all the spare parts. So I wanted to get time on that, and so I started doing sound there. And then the whole live streaming thing with First Two Media, they basically had a series of shows at the Independent in San Francisco. One of which you roped me into doing. I roped you into doing, and it was really cool because, you know, my buddy called me up. He's like, we need gear because we're doing an installation. I'm like, awesome. So <laughs> I sourced some gear. I got a 48-channel digital mixer, and I had to arrange for the venue. I got to pick out a 48-channel three-way whirlwind concert splitter with these hand-wired snakes that cost way too much money. Oh, yeah. But they're awesome. So it was, it was cool. I got to build a system and go in there, and we did probably 25 shows with that venue gets really cool emerging bands. So like anytime you're in there, you may not know who's going to be there, but you're like, this venue is very well curated. So I'm going to see something new that's probably about to hit or is hitting. So it's kind of cool. You know, I'm a little bit older. I know what station I'm going to turn my Sirius XM radio to every time I get in. So it's cool to be in situations where you're like, I don't know what I'm about to hear. It keeps oh, me yeah, fresh. Yeah. So we did that. We shows all year. They flew me to LA a couple times, did some cool stuff. And then that ended for that situation. But then I said to the production manager, I was like, hey, man, can I get in here to do sound? I wanted to just grow my experience. And again, they've got an SC48 there and that's the monitor's desk. So, all right. So I've done some gigs there. And so that just kind of grew and grew. And so I just got more into this live thing. For me, the beauty of it has been, it goes back to that thing we were doing at KFOG. I think it's really helped my mixing process 
Because it's like, okay, we can spend days on a mix. I could spend days on a mix, but I'm also like, can I do a mix in two hours and have it be like 90%? Kind of like as if it's live, because it it puts you in this thing where you're just doing stuff and you're making decisions and you get more used to like, okay, this is going to do this, this is going to do this. And then I'm going to go back and I'll ride the solos and and the vocals and change some things. And then I'm going to throw it up there and I'm going to see what kind of reaction I get. Like we were talking about earlier, I've got this client I'm working with and you've been mastering this stuff. And the reaction is always like, that's great. Let's move on. <laughs> She's got got a, a similar mentality in that yeah. she wants to move quickly as well. She does. And I like that because this individual, she's young and she's in college and she's putting out her first record and she's liking the way it sounds. And I think she's more interested in like, let's get this done. And she's got a PR company. She's on a schedule. She's already put two singles out and she's made a video and she wants to drop this thing in January. So it's like, let's not deliberate or belabor the minutia or the small details. Overall, this is sounding good. And let's look at the the broader picture. The broader picture. Let's let's look at the big thing. As far as survival has been for you doing these gigs, has it been difficult or has it been pretty lucrative? Because you're you seem to be saying yes to everything. I say yes to a lot. I was saying yes to everything probably for the last couple of years, but I also have this barometer of I'm saying yes too much. As far as survival, I will be honest that. Doing live sound in the Bay Area can pay decent. Sometimes it can pay pretty well, and sometimes it doesn't pay that great. I think I've traded some time for experience. Mm. And also, I'll do this for a while, see where it goes. And sometimes there's a factor of like, I really want to mix monitors for this band because it'll be cool. And it'll get me out of the house, too. It'll get me out of the, the cave, Right. Sometimes. So, but I also, I'm a family man. I've got three kids at home ranging from age six to 12. So I'm very, you know, I'm very careful. Like I don't like to work two nights in a row. I don't like to work more than two or three nights a week. I don't want to work more than one weekend day. And I want to try and not work every weekend or two weekends in a row. So I kind of try and balance that. I also like being out in the scene. But I also try and and like balance, like I want to be home. I want to be tucking my kids in at least four nights a week. I don't want to be totally absent. I mean, I've done gigs where I leave before they wake up and I get home after they've gone to bed. So it's like I was on tour for a day, right? But I still slept in my bed and I still maybe made them breakfast in the morning, right? And to me, there's a lot of value in that. But I, I try and like space things out. Now, if something comes along and it pays really well and I have to break a rule, I'm like, okay, that's part of survival. And that's also like a really cool gig. So I'm going to, I'm going to deal with the imbalance of that for a day or two until I get my sleep and everyone's like, okay, dad's back around. There's the money aspect, Mm -hmm. the uh, experience and the desire, because you you may, as you said, have a band that you, you just want to work with regardless of the other aspects. You may already have the experience on the board and the money might not be that great, but you might have the desire to want to do the gig. Totally. If someone's like, hey, fill in the blank, this band is doing a show at the venue that's, it's a cool venue, maybe it doesn't pay great, but hey, awesome. Hey, I'm going to get to hang out on the side of the stage and watch this show. I'll probably get to meet these guys, but I'll, you know, it'll be cool to like do sound for them. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. 
And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. What about the experience aspect of it? Do you ever go into this feeling nervous about, oh gosh, I don't know if I can pull this off. I don't know this board or, or this is unfamiliar surroundings. How do you cope with that part of it, that mm. performance aspect? Yeah, because sometimes like, you know, even like, oh God, I haven't worked in that venue in three months. Where's the, where's the power switch or something? Like, I got to remember. But I, I feel like actually that kind of like, okay, I'm 10% unsure of myself actually makes me do a job better. Mm. Even if I'm tracking a band, like, oh God, I haven't, I haven't done a session at this studio in a while. Did they change anything? How does the patch bay work? How do I do the So that not knowing, I think it, it puts you in this mode when you go into the situation, you're like, oh, I'm gonna, I could do this in my sleep. I'm an expert. It's more like, I need to think about this. I need to maybe ask questions of it, or I need to read the manual, or I just need to kind of be on my game. So then it, put you in your game and then you're like more on top of it what was the console that they used at the independent for the streaming gig that you had me do yeah that was an allen and heath sq5 okay so for the audience i did this gig for ben i filled in for him and he brought me down to the venue a day or two ahead of time we went through the input list we pre-labeled everything everything was ready to go and i love that i love that being prepared yes but then the day of the gig, I got late word. Oh, everything's changed. Yeah. I needed to go out to find the new input list, which had not been provided, and then re-plug all this stuff into this board that I was had one kind of training on. Right. And man, my nerves were just like, because that desire to want to do a good job is so powerful that you run into this situation, you're like, oh, crap. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing though. By the way, that happens all the time with like touring bands. Some management person sends out the writer from like 1984 <laughs> when like two of the guys were still alive or whatever. And it's like, yeah, we don't have Rankin Rogers not in the band anymore. You know? right. <laughs> but um, so you get that and then the band comes and then like, okay, you're upstairs in this cave and then the sound guys are doing it. And then all of a sudden you go down there like, dude, this is not the input list. So all of a sudden you're going in there and you're reassigning channels. But then there's the being prepared where it's like, oh yeah, well, Ben and I met and he showed me where the IO patching is. And I can very quickly like drag dots around and repatch it if I need to. Right. But if we hadn't done that, you'd be calling me like, dude, how do I do this? This whole thing's digital. I got to either go down to the stage box and scramble all this stuff or uh, and then oh my god there's sound check you know what i mean so there is that thing but i think there's an adrenaline rush to that too where it's like i want to succeed and i have five minutes <laughs> yeah but there, there's also that fear of like looking like a jerk in front yeah. of the rest of the crew which you do not want to do no you don't you don't and you don't want to be a jerk you don't want to look a jerk and it can get tense i think too and it's like all right, the band showed up late. They want a sound check. There's another band here. And I got lucky because the band wanted a sound check forever. Yeah. And that gave me a chance to like flush it out right. fully. Right. And it's nerve wracking too. I mean, when you're doing these things and you're like, I got to create a mix. I'm in a way uncontrolled environment. We did those gigs in in your monitors because literally you're up behind the stage and it's all this like, 
boom, boom. Right, like, it's all I can't tell. End. Yeah, I mean, and so I'd go in there and put these like sure in ear monitors in, and then I'd take these just skull candy lifestyle headphones, but they had these huge, poofy, over the ear things. And I literally just put those over, like, you know, I'm shooting guns, you know, like, <laughs> and I put those over, and then I crank it up probably too loud. I was like, I think I can hear what's going on here. But you're like, I don't know this band, and I want to create this nice dynamic mix, and it's going to go, and it's going to go on YouTube, and then this is going to get happen, and they're going to lop off frequencies, and but it's got to be loud enough because someone's listening to it on that MacBook, and the speakers are crappy. Yeah, I've gone back to the to the YouTube episode of what streamed and what ultimately got recorded. The whole mix is a little more compressed than I would want, of course. Yeah. That kind of Monday morning quarterbacking of your own work yeah. kind of thing is happening. But people seem to dig it. It's getting views. And, and that's the forest for the trees aspect. It's right. like, you know what? It worked. You can hear the vocals. Right. There's a vibe. Let it go. Actually, it was interesting because it took me about at least 10 of those gigs to finally get like a formula and get into a groove with it. Well, like the first show, the levels were too low. At first they were really hot and it like pulled them down too far. Cause mm-hmm. what happens is like you're getting signal, you're pushing it out to like a line recorder. You're looking over like the switcher guys, the director's there and there's the guy making the cut. You're looking over his shoulder and you're trying to look at these like really small VU meters that are like six feet away. And then they're, they're showing you RMS and then there's like peak and, and you're trying to figure out what's going on. So I was like, oh my God, that's too hot. So I pulled it down. So the first feedback, it was too soft. And then the next show, I think they're like, it was too hot. And then the venue was like, it sounds too dry. It sounds too sterile. Like we're streaming from here and we want it to represent the sound of this club. And the guy made a couple suggestions. And one was like more room, more ambience. And why don't you get a effects mix from the band? And that's a tense situation because they, they take their sound and their venue seriously. And it, that venue, the independent is part of another planet entertainment, which is an amazing concert promoter here in the Bay area. I mean, the shows they put on, what they've done with their venues, it's, it's just like they're doing all sorts of great stuff. So they really wanted the product that was being put out to represent the venue. And I could have been like, Hey man, don't tell me what to do with my job. I was like, okay, I'll do that. I actually think that's a good idea. The next show I was like, hey, front of house guy for the band, I need you to send me a stereo effects return. Okay, fine. I want to dive into that a little bit. Yeah. I think a lot of people are used to folks like us going, no, that's a dumb idea. Or, you know, putting on the grumpy sound person hat. Oh my God. Have you ever seen that that video, All Sound Men Are Grumpy? No. Dude, we're watching it after this. Anyone who's out there, watch it. It's so funny. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> to instead come back with, okay, let me try that. Taking the opposite approach, taking a more positive approach. Like, do you feel that that goes a long way in being a little more agreeable, not for the sake of being agreeable, but just trying to be a little more of a team player? Yeah, I- I look at it at a couple levels. I think team player is key because I think one thing I've learned, and I think this is what I learned from like doing corporate audio gigs, is you're on a team. And when you use that word and how like, okay, like I'm trying to do my job and you're giving me feedback and you're going to make me do this like not fun task again, but it's because the product needs to be better and I'm on your team. And so being a team player, making it great for everyone, getting along. And then I also think there's like a little bit of thing of beginner's mind in there, which is a Buddhist mindfulness principle. But to cut it short, I can always learn something. I have been doing this for 10 plus years. 
there are people who've been doing this for like longer than I've been alive. Wait. Right? Haven't you been doing it longer than 10 years? Yes. I said 10 plus. 10 plus. 10 plus. 10 plus. 10 plus. Okay. Look, before 2007, I was more focused on being a bass player and I'm going to tour with a band. And then when I started to have children, I'm like touring with a band. I have not gotten into a band that's paying me six figures plus. Does not make sense. I'm going to refocus on the studio world. So 10 plus. So let's say I've been producing records for other people for more than 10 years. So I feel like okay, I put in a lot of hours here. I feel confident about what I do, Mm -hmm. but I'm not, I don't let my ego get the best of me. I'm not arrogant about it. I don't think I know everything, like my kids who think they know everything. But (laughs) um, I'm like, I can learn something from any situation. Even if it's like, oh, I patched that thing wrong. There's something to learn. Or working with the sound man at SF Jazz, who's amazing, this guy, Masanori, who's like just amazing. I always learn something when I work with him anything but like being in a situation where okay it's a little tense here these guys aren't psyched about the way the mixes are sounding on youtube and they're making a couple cool suggestions and i'm like i'm gonna try that because i didn't think of that why not if it sucks i won't do it again right and then i did it and the next time it was like they're like dude yeah man i could hear the air in the room i'm like yeah because i really jacked up the ambience mics instead of like okay i'll just take the band's effects instead of running the effects on the board I'll take theirs. Maybe I'll add a little extra reverb if I feel like I need it somewhere. But dude, that just made my job easier. Yeah. I'll just set that thing there and I got their delays. And if they do a move or they create like some kind of echo or they got something weird going on, awesome. Yeah. Flash forward, I just did a show with them at the Warfield. It was ex-ambassadors. And and it was all very unknown. Talk about like not knowing what's going on. (laughs) Knew about this show for like two months. Band wasn't getting back to our director of photography, the director of the the live stream and all this stuff. And like, we're going into it. And I'm like, do I need to bring a 48 channel split? I'm spending time. I'm calling up my buddy Nils at Erickson Sound Productions and be like, do you have a 48 channel split? Like I might need a board that's got, I don't know if I need a board that has AS50 or Dante because they're telling me they want to give me digital lines. Our board doesn't do that. I'm like, I don't know what I need. And also we had this board, the Allen and Heath board at the venue. We didn't know if we could get access to it. So I'm spending all this time like covering my bases. What's plan A, B, and C? So then finally, like a day before, they're like, hey, the funny thing is like sometimes when you're dealing with the live situation, it's like you're, you're dealing with a probably a tour manager, maybe a production manager. This person might not know exactly the tech. The tour production manager for the band I just mentioned, great guy. His main gig is like building these custom drums, custom maple drums, and somehow he's involved with their production management and he was really solid, but he just, he wasn't like saying like, yeah, man, we can get you analog stems of the mix. So, but finally we get looped in with the front of house guy and he's like, Hey man, I can give you seven stereo pairs. You know, I'll give you vocals with effects mixed in guitars with bass mixed in drums. I'll give you our playback tracks. A lot of these bands have tons of playback tracks. Now you could take a band that might have 24 inputs. All of a sudden they're 40 because they've got 16 channels of Ableton running out. So he's like, you know, I'll give you ambience. I'm like, dude, that's perfect. That's what we wanted. So this show, I ended up with seven stereo pairs plus the front of house mix. So what I did, I was like, front of house mix at Unity, brought up the ambience, and that was pretty good. And then as the show went, as soundcheck went, I was like, you know, and a little more of this, a little more of that. And I just started to kind of bring in the stems a little bit just to augment what I felt would beef it up. And my buddy who runs the company, he's like, oh man, I was at YouTube the next day to make a pitch. Everyone said it sounded awesome. 
And I was like, that's really cool because we kind of went from taking every channel, doing our own mix. Maybe we'd take the stereo effects return to a hybrid of give us sub mixes, give us your mix. We'll salt and pepper to taste. We'll add it in as we need it and getting amazing results in the basement of the Warfield. I'm sitting there and I had, I brought monitors for the show. I didn't have to do it in in ears. And I brought these like monitors that I had on loan because I reviewed them and I just set them up and did the little quick calibration thing and they sounded great and everything sounded great and everyone gave me good feedback. I was like, that's awesome. I didn't have to do a whole mix from scratch, but they gave me what I needed, but I didn't, I was unsure what I was even going to get. Right. Up until the day of the gig. Kind of. Yeah. But then they ended up being really cool and like, yeah, totally, man. Here's the outputs from our stage rack. I got 14 of them. Plugged in a snake that I got from my buddy Nils, ran it across. The crew there is awesome. They ran it across for me. They stuffed it down a hole, went to the basement. I plugged it into my mixer. Everything was there and it worked. So, you know, the stress that you encounter leading up to the gig can be a little nerve wracking. It can be because you don't know. I mean, I think this even like when you're making a record. My thing is that I think I'm a planner. I'm, you know, always putting stuff in my reminders and thinking about making lists. You try and think of, I learned this from my brother because he produces a music festival. And he told me like years ago, he's like, I just sit there. I try and think every stupid detail, like where's the trash can is going to go? Where's the water station going to be? Like, where are people going to go if they need to do this? Right. So I'm thinking about like, I'm going to make a record. What do I need to bring? Or I'm going to do a live stream gig. What do I need to bring? Or I'm going to do front of house. What does that venue not have that I want? And I just start making lists. And then I go back into my notes on my iPhone. I'm like, oh, I'm going to do this gig again. What did I write down last time? So I try and do like the stress or the planning or the brainstorming. So then I'm like, when the day comes, I'm like, I've already thought about this. And I brought too much gear, but I don't, you don't ever know what you're going to need. Hmm. In my little backpack, I've got this little emergency kit of things, just random USB cables and like mini plugs to RCA or TRS or these things called FedHeads, which are like cloud lifters. Right. I keep two of those in my bag all the time because you never know. Like you get somewhere like, dude, this preamp sucks. <laughs> and I got to use that SM57 and I need more gain and it's going. Pss. So if I plug this thing in and, and throw on Phantom, all of a sudden I've got more gain for free. And it just saved the vocal. Right. Just keeping those in your back pocket. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app. And I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it. And it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. So let's talk a little bit more about uh, record making and, and how that's been playing a part for you in the last three years. Has it been difficult finding artists to work with in the Bay Area for you? And how have they been finding you? What, and what, what do you bring to the table for them? How do you sell them on you? 
Sure. I'll answer that question first. The way I sell them on me, I think is kind of just being me, but like either getting them on the phone or more often than not, I'm like, just come over. I'll sit with anyone for an hour. Like if they really want to work with me, especially if they're like going to do at least a few songs, I'm just come to my studio, see the space. Let's hang out, play me a song, play me two songs. I'll give you some honest feedback and opinion. So they get a taste of what like hanging out with Ben in the one room studio and working together, the conversation might be like. So I try and take it from there. Also, sometimes people just send me songs, right? Like, hey, here's what I'm working on. And all right, I'm gonna take half an hour. I'll take an hour. I'll listen to these. I'll type up notes about what I think we might do. Try and get them excited. Try and get them inside the process. Another way I try and sell them on me is like, Hi, you're a singer-songwriter. You're good at what you're doing. You don't have a band, do you? You want a band album. I know great drummers, and guess what? I play bass. I play bass really well. I've been playing bass since I was 15. I play upright. I play electric. I got a fretless. I got a five-string. I got a P bass. You don't have to hire a bass player. I just saved you $500 to $1,000, <laughs> right? And I also try and like, hey, yeah, I could just record your band. I also consider myself to be a producer. I have an opinion. So I can multitask or I can wear two hats. I can save you money. I can take you to a studio. We can record for two days and do it what I call traditional or a little bit old school. We can get that lightning in the bottle. And then we can go back to my place and overdub as much as you want and remove the overhead of the bigger studio. Hmm. Let me throw something out at you just to give a little advice to those who may not have a good enough facility or enough facilities where they live. So let's say they have a, a small home studio, but they don't have a place to go track. Mm -hmm. There's no studio in town or the studio that's there is run by some, I don't know, meth head that you just don't want to deal with. What would you recommend in that situation? I think in that situation, especially a situation where there's no good affordable studio for a DIY engineer producer to go to means you're in a smaller what I would consider semi-rural area where hopefully real estate's cheap. So I would consider the odds of like, there is an underserved community here. Mm. I'm going to put some money into building a decent, functional, not fancy, but nice studio that people want to come hang out at my house and record, or I'm going to go downtown and find some neglected, cool, funky space because someone built a mall 20 years ago and downtown died or whatever, which is my hometown. But consider opening a semi-commercial spot and serving a community that might not have a place to go. I wouldn't do that here in the Bay Area. Neither would I. Yeah. <laughs> but if you're in between and you can serve if you could create a niche or niche, whatever you want to call it for yourself, maybe you do that. Or maybe you, like, I'm going to convert the garage. I don't want to pay extra rent, but I could get a three-bedroom house. I could get a roommate. Or I could get a two-bedroom house and convert the garage and supplement the rent with, like, you know, hey, if I do three gigs here a month and record people, that'll pay the extra rent. And then I've got this business. I would consider that maybe. Yeah. But of course, you want to check your zoning laws before you go and jump in to that business. Totally. Do your homework. Find out what's legit. If you're in a situation like that where it's not like an extreme burden to create a facility for yourself and for others to use to come in and it's not, there's nowhere to go, like, I might do that. You dove into our friend uh, Brian Hood's Profitable Producer course this past year. Yeah. Want to share any thoughts about that? 
I think if I glean anything from what those guys are sharing with the community, because that's just what they're doing. Those guys care more about sharing knowledge that they found by reading every business book that's out there that you probably don't have the time or interest to read. They've like gleaned a lot of it, but thinking like an entrepreneur, not just being like gig guy, not just being a freelancer guy. And also just like, dude, having systems like, all right, I got my accounting system in place. It just sucks everything out of my bank account, my credit card account. And at the end of the year, I could practically push a button. I put my expenses in and I hand it off to my tax guy. Things that save you money. Like thinking about things like that, thinking strategically in a way, like taking yourself more seriously, not underselling yourself, not worrying about the guy down the street who's like doing $5 mixes. But dude, and they're super cool because they have a podcast they do every week. They have a blog. You don't have to give these guys a dime and they're going to kind of tell you everything almost that's in that course. But the course offers a cool structured resource to go through. Just just for the audience, we're talking about my friends, Brian Hood and Chris Graham, who do the Six Figure Home Studio podcast, which I highly encourage you to check out. It's it's super informative. It's definitely one of the podcasts that I listen to on an irregular basis. They just have such nuggets of wisdom that go even deeper down the rabbit hole than I do. Yeah, no, totally. Because they're thinking about it from like, I'm running a business mm-hmm. and there's a lot of books out there. And and also they're thinking about it like you're an entrepreneur. You're not just a guy who owns mics in an interface and a computer. It's just the way they think about it. So have you been as a direct result of exposure to Brian and Chris's podcast and, and Brian's profitable producer course, have you been working on the systems for you, for your audio business? Yeah, I think I have. I mean, like the first thing I did, I was like, God, I don't have a Google business page. That's free. I should put that up there. Yeah, you plus <laughs> you've, been sending, you've been texting me like, hey, what accounting thing are you using? Yeah, well, because I've been slow to go through the course. I actually got very, the first thing I did, I was like, and this wasn't even the course, this was in their, their podcast. I, was, I set up the Google business page. I got deep into kind of tweaking my website and then Brian, as part of the course, there's group coaching. So I put up there and everyone's like, can you review my, my website? So then like he reviewed my website and he gave me some great feedback. I don't know if anyone here does their own website, but it's like you go to change three things and two hours went by. It's like being in the studio and recording a song. It's like change, commit, change, commit, no change. And all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, I just wasted. I, what am I been doing for four hours? What were the Ugh. big things that you changed? Call to actions. I had this picture of like a cool Neve board. <laughs> That's not mine on the front page. And it was just taking up way too much real estate. So like shrinking that down and figuring out how to do that. Doing things like hooking up Google Analytics and Squarespace and trying to put a Facebook pixel in, which you can't do unless you upgrade to business level. And I was like, all right, forget it. But just going deep, changing, updating reviews, changing my contact form instead of having 10 fields, having three or four, making it low friction updating my portfolio because it's like, dude, two years can go by and you're like, oh, dude, I just made 10 records. I haven't put any of them on my website because I'm not paying attention to it. I know. So stuff like that or like if someone fills out my contact form, now it automatically populates a, a spreadsheet in Google Drive. You know, so it's like I know who's coming through. I know where things are coming from. Stuff like that, just automated stuff or like hooking up Hotjar. Where am I losing traffic? Hotjar is this thing where it's like it creates heat maps. It records people's actions on your website. I know creepy, right? But I can see like someone got to my homepage. They clicked on about me and then they never went to the contact form because what you're trying to do is someone gets to my page, 
They check it out. They listen to my music. They contact me. They're in my funnel. Now I can have a conversation. I can talk to them. I can get them hearing my voice. I can enlighten them to my process. Maybe I can get them over. They can see the space. We can talk. I can make them an espresso. They can play guitar. It's like they say, most small home studio entrepreneurs have a traffic problem. And this goes back to your question, like, is it hard to find clients? Yeah. It's extremely challenging. You know, I used to always be like, oh, the Bay Area is the worst place to do this. There's so many people and there are a ton of people and you've got SAE and you've got schools and like, God bless them, man. They're going to churn out for every hundred students. They're going to churn out three people who are awesome. But there's a lot of people who are like, they don't know what they want to do and they kind of get sold on an idea. So I've stopped thinking about like where there's an oversaturation in the Bay Area of people who are trying to do. There's just tons of people out there, but I've, I've also stopped looking at like, it doesn't matter what other people are doing. You're doing what you're doing, Ben or Matt or whatever, and you do what you do good and you've been doing it for a while and people still keep coming to you. So I'm just going to like do what I do and I'm going to be me and I'm going to try and make the best of it. And I'm also going to try and like spread it out as much as I can and make it more community if I can and share it. But like, yes, advertising is a thing, right? I can't tell you for what I do, how much traffic I'm going to get for advertising. I'm trying Google ads. I might try a little more Facebook ads and stuff. But even like if you listen to what Brian and Chris have to say, 90% of what happens in what we do in audio or the music business is word of mouth. What did I do for so-and-so? Did they talk about me? Did they share with their friend? Are they coming back? What kind of experience did I give them, right? Another thing that I gleaned just from listening to a podcast that these guys do from the Six Figure Home Studios, make sure you're getting credited. Less more today about, hey, this is what I want in the CD liner notes because it's like, what's a CD? But yeah, you want to make sure the CD says, you know, mixed, produced by Ben. And if I can get my URL on there, that's awesome. But more like, hey, man, if if you're going to post on social media, tag me. Yeah. Put my hashtag on there just so people can be like, oh, you worked with Ben Bernstein Music. Let me Instagram or go to his Facebook or Maybe I find his website or just wherever you're doing that. Or, hey, if you're putting stuff on Spotify, there's actually a field there for produced by. Most people don't know what's there, but try and get in them to do that when they set up the project for distribution, because going back in and do it could be unsuccessful or a pain in their butt. So handing them like, here's all my stuff. Here's how I'd like to be credited. Because otherwise, no one's going to know who it was. You talked about removing the friction, and that seems to apply to all of these things. There can be organized artists, for sure, type A folks that really have it together. But at the same time, there's so much they have to worry about. So Mm -hmm. the more you can smooth the process, just in terms of making sure you're credited properly, send them a document with all of your social media stuff so that when they go to do it, they go, oh, that's right. I've got Ben's social accounts here. I'll just cut and paste and boom, boom, boom. Make that stuff, go into Google Docs or whatever, Write it all down with some standardized text so you can just go in there, copy, paste. Hi, Matt, we just did a record. It was awesome. I'm so excited for you. Hey, you're getting ready to release. Here's my information, how I'd like to be credited on the CD or the vinyl, which is more likely than the CD now for social media, whatever it is. If you're going on Spotify or whatever, DistroKid or TuneCore, if there's a field for it, please list me as producer. And they have it and it's all there. And like, I've got nothing but positive response for people doing it. And I've seen several artists since I've been doing this, they're taking the bait. I'm getting tagged. I dude loathe going on social media, but I've also realized that I've got to do some of it. Even if you're not, you know, going on the, the 
broader friend stream, like going in, making sure I'm posting stuff, posting some pictures to Instagram, bumping them to Facebook, making it look like I'm doing stuff. And then going more like going into my artist page, like, okay, so-and-so just released a song. I'm going to share that. I'm going to tag that. I'm going to put that on my personal thing. Just so like they're getting some love, just putting the hearts there, commenting and interacting. So like them doing that and then like that giving me almost like a positive reason to be on social media and like, like dude, just staying out of like the wider current of it. Yeah, st- staying yeah. out of yeah, staying out of the fray. And, yeah, uh, I think it was Billy Decker, a uh, former WC, I guess Billy Decker, that said he uses social media to brag on his kids and brag on his career. Right. I've got a personal Facebook page. I've got a business production Facebook page. I've got the Working Class Audio Facebook page. So if I'm now posting for an episode, I'm actually posting now on my personal and the Working Class Audio page, and then for production stuff, I'm posting on the personal and the production page. Right. Because a lot of people you meet, one of the first things they're going to do, they're either going to hit you up on Facebook or LinkedIn, and they're going to go to your personal pages. Mm -hmm. So if you're utilizing those personal pages for some of the business stuff, then they see, oh, okay, this person's working. And it kind of removes a step of like, Make sure you like my business page. Yeah. My first thing is always like, okay, I'm on Instagram. Like I got this cool picture of Matt playing drums in my studio. He looks really cool over there. So I'm working with Matt today. We're tracking for so-and-so. I'm going to put the picture up there and then I immediately push it to Facebook, right? So then I go into Facebook and then I share that to my personal page, right? Or if like so-and-so releases a song, I'll go on Facebook I'll share that to my business page and then share that post to my personal, just so there's like kind of this two-way thing. Mm-hmm. Just so if someone ends up, also, oh, I want my friends out there in the universe to be like, hey, Ben's working with someone. Maybe they'll like the music. Ben's a music guy. We like Ben. Like, oh, hey, cool. Like, oh, I like so-and-so's track. I'm, t-. You know, honestly, in the end, all I really want, like, yes, I want people to be like, Ben's the man. We're going to go work with him. Ben's dope. We're going to make a a record. But no, whatever. I want the people I work with to have success. I want them to sell. I want them to have 5,000 streams next year. So then they're like, hey, man, cool. My record did good. I want to make more music with you or whatever. Or just like, I'm having a great career. That was awesome. Now I'm working with this awesome producer in Nashville. Cool, man. Your career's taking off. Just remember me. You're here on the way up. But whatever. I want these musicians to like, the ones that come in who are not hobbyists, like that's great if you're a hobbyist and you're just like, literally, it's like, I'm just fulfilling your passion. But the people who are like, I want to do this. I'm like, I want to help you make a great record. So then you can get to the next level, whether it's with with me or someone else, like you're going to go out and try and have a music career and like play gigs and get downloads and streams and maybe sell some vinyl. That would be awesome. You said something earlier. You were raising the question of trying to find work in the Bay Area. And I think I'm just, I'm over it. I think I'm just thinking more globally. And if somebody I I end up working with is in the Bay Area, great. That makes it easy and convenient. But if they're not, eh, the great internet brings, brings the world to your doorstep, right? It's true. And I mean, I think especially like, I know you've, besides this podcast, you've pushed your work more into mixing and mastering, which, all right, it's real easy for people to send you high rate res mixes and get it there. And But it is a little bit of a challenge too. It's like, okay, man, I've got a whole album of stuff. I recorded it at 96K and it's in FL Studio. How am I going to get it to you? And then you're sitting there like, okay, I got to figure this out. But anyways, it's also, you do not have to be present with that person in a physical space. Right. When you're producing or you're making a record with a band, it's like there's this physical thing that has to happen, right? So then it's like, all right, well, 
I don't own a piece of land in Joshua Tree with four Airstreams on it, which maybe I will someday. But so people aren't really traveling to stay at my house. And I don't have I don't have the name yet to where people are like, we're going to work with Ben. We don't care what it takes. So I'm working with local artists. So if I continue to be like, I'm a music producer and I'm a recording engineer and I'm a DIY guy, I need to find people who are going to be here to work with. And I do think about that, like, should I just build up my mixing career more? And and more and more, like, I kind of think like that. But I also, I think this goes back to having been like a live musician for so long. There's a certain part of me that's like, I like to be with people and I like to be there kind of when it's happening. Mm. And I also kind of like, I like to guide people through this process. And that's an idea too. Like no matter what you're doing, if you're mixing or mastering or taking a person on a hike or making a record with them, like you're the guide. It's like Obi-Wan Kenobi is Luke Skywalker's guide. And I did not create that idea. I got it from listening to Brian and Chris's six figure podcast, but that's what you're really trying to provide for people. Like you're an artist, you probably have limited funds to get whatever done you're trying to do. I'm going to make that painless for you. I'm going to make it high quality and I'm going to make it simple. But part of me likes to be there like, okay, maybe you haven't done this before. Maybe you've done this five times, but we're going to go in. This is how we could work. This is how I like to do it. We're going to go in in two days. You're going to bring the band in or we're going to bring in these musicians. We're going to record 10 songs in two days. We're going to go home. We're going to overdub for a week. I'm going to mix it. It's going to be done. And I'm going to do it for $5,000. And then you're going to have more money to promote it with. And people will be like, okay, cool. All right. Last question. Okay. Producing and being compensated. Mm -hmm. You mentioned, you know, doing essentially what you alluded to as an all-in budget type thing Mm. for somebody to pay you. But do you ever ask for anything beyond that? Points, streaming, anything like that? I haven't gotten to that point yet. Honestly, I kind of work by the hour and by the day and people don't have a problem with it. I got my rate. I got my day rate. And like, I always put people like, do you want a project rate or do you want to do this? Like, we'll just see how we go. And nine times out of 10 are people just like, let's just get into it. I honestly, if I make a project rate, it's based on what I know, how long things take. And I'd say it's probably 10% the same either way. Mm. It's not like if someone paid me X amount and they would have spent more by the hour or vice versa. As far as points, I'd like to get into that. But I also feel like at this point, I'm like, people are paying me good money to record and produce them. And it's like, I think at this point, I'd, I'd, I kind of feel like I'd rather them go out there and like if they get a licensing deal and someone gives them 500 bucks, they're just recouping what they spent making that record. If they get to the next level and they start to, hey, I got a small deal. I'm like, hey, all right, I want my 3% off the top before you make producer points because that's what they are. And I might get into that. I've done it a few times and stuff like that. But it's like where the business is right now and what people are actually making on their recording. It's like, dude, people are making money on Merchant at the Gate nine times out of 10. The people I'm working with, but we'll see. I try and make it, again, simple and not complicated, which is like, do you want to do a package rate or do you want to just do it by the hour? You own your material. The only the only time that I tell people, if, if we actually sit down and write a song together, then you need to give me composer credit. Okay. Well, in the spirit of what we just got through talking about, sure. where can people find out more about you now? You can find out about me on the internet at benbernsteinmusic.com. On the internet, no doubt. <laughs> on the World Wide Web. Is there an outer net? Uh, I think that's the dark the web. The dark web. So yeah, on the internet at benbernsteinmusic.com. You can just Google Ben Bernstein Music. I'll come up. You can go to Facebook or Instagram, Ben Bernstein Music. That's S-T-E-I-N. 
and drop me a line, shoot me an email, find my phone number, call me up if you want to just talk or comment on anything we talked about, or if you maybe want to like make a record, whatever, be good to hear from you. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thanks, Ben. Let's go to lunch. Yum. Yes. Ben Bernstein here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LPUNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I certainly appreciate it. want to thank the crew that helped out. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme music, and the smooth, silky voice of Mr. Chuck Smith. Spread the word. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio... This is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>